0: Hey
1: there product lovers, welcome to the Product Love Podcast, hosted by Eric Bodick, co-founder and chief evangelist of Pendo, and super fan of all things product. Product Love is the place for real insights into the world of crafting products, as Eric interviews founders, product leaders, venture
0: capitalists, authors, and more. So let's dive in now with today's Product Love Podcast. Well, welcome, Lovers of Product. Today I am here with Howard Kirsky. Howard is a published best selling author and also runs his own digital agency. Howard, why don't you kick this off by giving us a little overview of your background? Sure. Well, hey, Eric, thanks so much for having me.
1: Well, I've spent pretty much the last 25 years working with large brands on digital transformation, although that term we've used for the last five years, maybe. But I started working with large consulting firms. I was with Ernst & Young Consulting and Capgemini, working with brands in the early days, General Electric, General Motors, Office Depot, Merrill Lynch, Lehman Brothers. And, you know, in the very earliest days, it was establishing their original digital presence. And, of course, over the years, as digital has become more and more central to business in pretty much every industry, working in the establishment of e-commerce. And now today we have, you know, that whole digital-centric lifestyle that we're making sure that we can adapt brands to support. Somewhere along the way in that journey about 15 years ago, I guess it is now, I launched uh, my own company. And so since then, I've been doing similar work, but with my own team. My company is called From, the Digital Transformation Agency. And we've had just the tremendous privilege and opportunity to work with a lot of brands like Transamerica, NBC, Airbus, ADP, AAA, Avis, and, and many others. So let's step back a little bit. Tell us how you got into tech to start with. It's funny you ask the question cuz I don't even always feel like I'm in tech. <laughs> but I guess in a way I am, of course. You know, I'm in experiences. I started out in theater. That was my original training and background in love, which was the performing arts and I was a theater director and I was doing that professionally in Los Angeles back in the early 90s. And around the same time, the digital world, the internet wasn't quite commercialized yet, but We were starting to do a lot of desktop video and multimedia, if you remember that term. And so I I, I transitioned from doing that type of work, which was exciting to me as well. And at the time, frankly, I could get paid for doing that. It was hard to get paid as a starting up new theater director. And so I, I wound up really very immersed in what technology could do to create an experience for an audience. And as brands needed to do that more and more and more, that's became the thing that I have really focused my career on.
0: Yeah, so we're going to jump back into storytelling. But before we do, you know, talk to me about your experience at Capgemini, what teams you oversaw there, what it was like working there. Sure. Well, uh, you know, I had great experiences working in large consulting companies. One of the
1: best, I mean, two of the really fantastic things about being in an environment like that are, number one, you get exposed to fantastic clients, both Ernst, you know, the history there was I worked for Ernst Gen Consulting and at a certain point Ernst Gen Consulting's practice was bought by Capgemini. So I just sort of went along with that sale. But, you know, every day I was getting another call about another Fortune 1000 brand that I needed to to meet with or talk to. So just having that kind of exposure and getting to be immersed in the business issues of all so many large companies is just a tremendous learning opportunity. And the second thing is, of course, there's fantastic people, people who've been doing this type of transformation work with companies for decades, because even in the early days of what we would consider to be digital, technology transformation wasn't new. There's just been different eras of it, client server and, you know, ERP and all these things have been around for a long time. So I got the opportunity to work with many people who had been down the road on how you help large organizations transform. So those are fantastic things about being in those types of environments when I was um, asked to lead the user experience practice at Capgemini, you know, the one challenge that I had was it was a company that really thought of itself as a technology company. And they had a problem, which I've seen many times since, which is really, you had a limited number of people who really believed that user experience, customer experience was all that important. You know, mm-hmm. there was a lot of mindset that it's a lot about building a great tool and a great system. And yeah, someone's got to make the icons. So Thanks, Howard. But, you know, (laughs) like it wasn't there wasn't as much of a mindset then as I'm sure there is there now as to the importance of that. But even today, I see in many large organizations, still, it's tough for customer experience professionals in many companies to really be seen for the sort of driving most critical aspect that they really are. Because in my view, the technology is only about delivering a great customer experience rather than the other way around, rather than implementing technology and then trying to figure out how do we layer a user interface on top of it? And so, you know, that sort of philosophical difference is, is one that you have you've face in a lot of companies. And I, I certainly face back at Capgemini.
0: Yeah, I, I can definitely understand that. So talk to me now about your current role. Give me a little more details on what you're doing these days and more specifically what you're doing. Like, how do you oversee the group? How do you work with clients? How do you grow the company?
1: Yeah, well, I have just a tremendous team of people at From. We're about 100 people now, and some of whom, the leaders of the company, have been with me for most of them for more than 10 years. So, you know, I have the, the luxury of knowing that, you know, I don't really have to run the company. <laughs> you know, uh, the company to some degree runs itself, and I'm able to do a combination of working with our clients where I make sense to contribute. You know, my, my strongest contribution is usually around digital strategy and visioning. And a lot of clients go through different phases where sometimes the work we're doing with them is very much about that. And other times it's more about implementing. And we have other people who are fantastic implementers, people who understand the details of agile and design thinking and detailed user experience design and all these types of things. And so I wind up uh, moving in and out of different clients to be there when my personal contribution is most beneficial and then getting out of the way when there are other people at the company who should really be driving the work there. And then the other thing that I spend a lot of time on these days is on our publishing and thought leadership. You know, as you mentioned, I I published a book early this year called Winning Digital Customers, and that's given me a lot of opportunities to speak and write and be on podcasts like this one. And so, you know, I, I love the hybrid of spending maybe half my time deeply enmeshed with my clients and our clients' challenges, issues, and the other half talking to the world about this broader issue of digital transformation and innovation and how companies can drive forward. Because, of course, if I wasn't working with clients every day, I I wouldn't have nearly so much insight about it.
0: Yeah. You know, and digital transformation seems to be almost all any company seems to be talking about these days. If you want to be recession proof, it's time to transform your company. But it also feels like it's an opportunity to, you know, and maybe long needed opportunity to overhaul and evangelize inside the company, the the value of customer experiences and the value of being digital. How do you work with companies to evangelize the importance of digital and digital transformation?
1: Well, I think you said a couple of distinct things there that I think are both important. And one is evangelizing the importance of customer experience and the other is, is digital, right? And so those two things are, of course, tightly interconnected because in the world today, our customers are living an increasingly digitally centric lifestyle. And so if you want to deliver a great customer experience, digital, of course, is a critical part of it. Although it's not the totality. Yeah, no, absolutely. 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 Yeah. You know, I think in terms of how to evangelize it, I think it starts by finding the believers within an organization. You know, typically we're hired by somebody, you know, somebody decides it's important enough to hire a company like ours. And then usually we find there are some people who already all right, you know, believe in it and others who need to be persuaded. And so I think the first step is to figure out who are your allies and who's a part of that, who shares your priorities. And then I think you need to create a compelling case. I think anything that a company is going to focus on or invest in is at the expense of something else. You know, if we're going to focus more on customer experience, we're spending less energy focusing on optimizing our supply chain or improving our finance system or or something. And so you have to be able to justify it. I spend a fair amount of space in my book talking about this issue of how do you justify both the importance of digital transformation and the importance of customer experience on the customer experience front, you know, there are many ways there's all kinds of data that some of which I include in the book that supports how companies that deliver a higher quality customer experience that correlates to improvements in revenue, profitability, you know, valuation of the company, things like that. So those are kinds of correlations that you can demonstrate And I also think that one thing I talk a lot about is something I go into in the book, which I just call the strategic customer experience model. And all it really is, is it's a logical connection that helps people understand what does customer experience really have to do with the business performance of a company? Because I think the people who are not strong advocates of major investments in customer experience, usually their mindset is something like this. They think, look. Do we want a good experience for our customers? Yeah, of course. We want our customers to be happy. No one's against a good customer experience. But when you say, well, we need to spend, you know, $25 million on doing A, B, and C to improve the customer experience, they say, well, wait, hold the phone for a second. You know, how good does this customer experience really need to be in order for the customers to give us their money? I mean, let's not go overboard here if we don't need to, because after all, we're running a business and every dollar that we spend on customer experience is a dollar that we can't spend on something else or returned as a dividend to our shareholders. So we have to justify that expense. And to me, what it comes down to is, what is it that really drives success of a business? I mean, ultimate success is measured by typically revenue, profit, you know, valuation. These are the measures that almost every, certainly every for-profit company is using. And then the question is, well, well, what is it that really drives that? And in the end, the number one thing that drives it, in my experience, is customer behavior. If you can get your customers to do what you want them to do, then you're probably running a pretty successful business. And if you can't, then you know, even if you get everything else right, your legal department is awesome. you know you're probably you know not. and so customer experience, and I, I go into more detail in the book, is really about how can you most effectively drive customer behavior and when you can connect the dots like that for people, all of a sudden, they start to see that this is not some kind of spiritual, like do good for the world. You know, we, we should really love our customers because they deserve the best. But a really a hard-nosed choice to say, if we really want to drive growth in our company, we need to focus and invest in customer experience because that's the biggest driver.
0: Yeah, let's talk about that a little more. What's the team internally look like? Like what's the dream team that you would want to work with internally to make sure that this transformation is successful?
1: Well, you know, it's a funny thing because The existence of companies like mine, consulting companies, helping with customer experience and digital transformation, in a perfect world, we might not be needed. In a perfect world, a company would already have all of the roles and knowledge and experience necessary to drive their own outstanding customer experience. And of course, we see that certain large, really successful companies in the digital space, as in Amazons or the Googles, they do things heavily with their own internal folks. So... A lot of our role is supplementing, is saying, all right, well, where is the company? What skills and capabilities and assets do they have? And where do they need help? And coming in to provide that help. So, you know, the funny thing is the most ideal situation with a client would be one where they have fantastic visionary business leadership, people who are well connected with understanding what's going on in the marketplace and the customer and can use that information to drive a vision for what that future state customer experience needs to be that will really enable them to stand toe-to-toe with any competitor in the marketplace. And then outstanding CX and UX teams who can break that down into specific experience, you know, design mobile app screens and web pages or figure out how to use voice or whatever technologies. There's such a wonderful palette of things, whether it's drones or virtual reality or, you know, a voice, I mean, depending on what the business is, of course. And then great technology teams who can create an architecture that is scalable and is flexible so that they can quickly make changes and test different things and build out the technology behind whatever vision has been created. And then great support teams who can make sure that whatever content needs to go out on an ongoing basis is done, customers are supported in the right way, you know, et cetera. And if all those, and and, and I guess lastly, I should add great leadership overall who can prioritize this for the company and, you know, overcome the natural resistance to change that many organizations have by providing an inspiring vision and setting priorities. And honestly, if they have all of those things, if they're perfect in all those areas, they may not need us at all. Um, But most companies aren't. Most companies have some parts of the equation and not all. And that's where we come in to help.
0: Now, you talked about the user experience and it made me think about, you know, customer journey, customer journey mapping, how -hmm. people do that as part of this. How do you map out customer journeys successfully and what problems or what mistakes do you see people making when they try to understand and map their user experiences?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I think customer journey mapping is one of the most powerful tools to Get you to a fantastic end state, and I, I spent quite a bit of time on it in my book. I think that the number one, you know, people when people think about customer journey maps, they think very often of this sort of you know aspirational vision of what the customer experience should be, and of course that's right. But if you ask what are the biggest mistakes people make, I think one of the biggest mistakes that companies make is not starting by mapping out the current journey, and I think that that's so important. It's so often executives or or people who are driving different operations or marketing or, or digital at a company have only a general idea of what really happens when their customers visit their website or order things or get something in the mail or show up at the store. You know, usually we have a sense of how it's supposed to go, but how does it really go? What's the actual journey that people have when they receive that PDF that you send them every month with their financial report? Do they read it? Do they not read it? Do they find it confusing? Do they misunderstand it and draw the wrong conclusions. And so I think, you know, the customer research to really map that out is key because once you've done that and you've understood what's the real world story of what happens, you can then start to say, well, where are the greatest points of pain? Where are we disappointing people? Where are we confusing people? Where are we frustrating them? And usually those are the most fertile spots to focus on innovating. So instead of starting with a blank sheet and saying, what would be a really cool customer experience? which may or may not turn out to be the thing that will drive the best business results, start by understanding what happens today and where can we improve people's emotional journey? Not just their journey of actions and behaviors, but their journey of their feelings. Where are they really excited and happy? And how do we make sure we keep that part? We don't want to lose the parts of the journey today that are great. And where are we putting them in a negative emotional state? And what can we do to turn that around? so that the things that are negative are, are turned into positives. And so I, I like to start with the current. I think that's really the foundation to then pour on and say, okay, if that's those are all the problems, now what are the technologies we could apply? What are the competitive examples? What's Google doing? What's Facebook doing? You know, What's Airbnb doing? What are all the things that we could potentially do to make that experience better and use that to form the future state journey map?
0: Yeah. What's always interesting to me is in working with a company and then you realize that Or you ask the question, have you signed up? Have you tried to buy your own service? Have you gone through the process as it exists today? You talk about the existing process (laughs) and I'm like, if you haven't tried it, you're going to learn something probably. And it's always amazes me, you know, that just going through that exercise, you can be like, oh, we shouldn't be doing things this way. Or why did we do that? Or yeah, this is a horrible experience at step three.
1: You're so right. It reminds me of a story that I, I do tell in the book, but we were doing a big project a number of years ago for a very large resort company, and we had to present our journey maps to the chairman and the CEO and all the top executives. And we were told, you know, you only have 20 minutes on the agenda, so you have to be really tight. And so we decided, okay, we're just going to present the future vision, right? We're not going to start with the current because we just didn't have the time. So I go through and I describe this vision of the future and how the booking is going to work and the information you're going to get and how it's flexible and you can change and upgrade and all these different features that are going to be part of how you buy a vacation package from this company. And at the end, the chairman says, well, this all sounds good, but isn't this pretty much what we're doing now? And like, no, not even remotely close. But, you know, when he wants a room at one of his resorts, he just tells his secretary. <laughs> so, as you say, he he doesn't know what that current experience is. And that's part of what taught me the lesson to make sure that you just always have to start with the current. Because you when you don't know what's going on today, it's hard to put the vision for the future in context.
0: You know, it, <laughs> this triggered another thought I had. I, I saw some Infographic uh, or study, you know, just yesterday, and I don't, I don't even know how true it is because you know it's on the internet, but so I, I mean, it must be true. But it was a question of who drove the digital transformation at their company or who drove kind of changes in the digital experience. And it was interesting to see it was like CTO had some product and digital transformation or chief digital officer or chief product officer, whatever that title was, you know, had a chunk, and then COVID. And the COVID number was like five times as big. So have you seen a lot of that now with like COVID as this big accelerator for digital where people used to have these, you know, two or three year plans about how the experience was going to incorporate more of the digital, you know, pieces to it. And now all of a sudden with COVID, it's like, okay, we need this next week. Yeah, I think so.
1: I, I, you know, I think that happened in two waves. The first wave was the crisis wave when all of a sudden a store would say, we need buy online, pick up in the store or pick up at curbside, right? We didn't have it before and we're like out of business until we have it. So, to some degree, that was like it was this emergency. Restaurants who didn't have a, a way of delivering needed to connect immediately with services like Grubhub or Seamless or something so that people could, could order because otherwise they had no revenue because their dining rooms were closed. And of course, we saw that across, you know, we work with the major sports league and, and they had, of course, to transform and say, oh, wow, you know, we're used to having people in the stadiums and we're used to doing things in a certain way. We need to really transform in, in order to be able to even have a broadcast that we can sell advertising on, things like that. So that was the first wave. And now I think the second wave, and and by the way, in some cases there was only so much you could do, or you had to do things in an expeditious way, but may or may not have been a good long-term way. It was the spit and bailing wire, whatever it takes to be able to implement this thing in a few weeks because we're in an emergency. And of course- Those companies that are already invested in agile development ops and good, you know, APIs and, you know, microservices and and a good modern technology stack and things like that were in a much better position to be able to rapidly respond to the changing needs than those companies that had a mainframe where if you wanted to make one change, you know, you needed six months of COBOL programmers and you only had four of them or, or whatever. But then the second wave came and what the second wave really was the recognition that, our customers have changed as a result of COVID. You know, one thing I've done a lot of work over the years with Tony Robbins, and I know from his teaching and others that that there's this power of repetitive behavior, that when you want to establish a new habit, like let's say working out or something like that, if you do it every day for like 30 days or 60 days, it will become an ingrained habit, and then you'll keep doing it kind of automatically, the way you brush your teeth when you wake up in the morning without having to think too much about it. and What we did with COVID was that we kind of forced people to take on new behaviors, new ways of ordering groceries, using Instacart, new ways of ordering, you know, instead of going out to eat, I order food from Uber Eats or what have you. And frankly, engaging with colleagues and working on a remote basis instead of going into the office and getting the benefits of not having to get my dry cleaning and not having commute time and all that, and not going to movies and instead watching more on Netflix and stuff like that, and all these changes. And- because we then essentially by cutting off the alternative methods, we created these new patterns of behavior. And now that they've been created, they're pretty powerful. And even though you may now be able to go out to dinner or go out to a movie or do these other things, you'll go to the grocery store. People in many cases are sticking with their new patterns. And so what that means is that companies have realized that this need for more digital capabilities is not just an emergency response to a temporary interruption of more analog methods of interacting with their customers, but a massive acceleration in the adoption by customers in all of these digital ways, digital touch points, digital ways of interacting. And so those companies, particularly that were behind, have realized that they need to scale up. They need to improve the experience. They've got more customers interacting with them that way.
0: Yeah. I think that's interesting because, you know, Before you talked about Tony Robbins, I was thinking about, okay, so how is the needs and wants of the customer and consumers in general changed? And I think you touched on that in large part that we've now created both good and I'm sure bad habits too that have gotten ingrained because of how our societal interactions have changed for the last or over the last year and a half, which then leads me to test, I guess, the follow-up detail is like, how have you seen the needs and wants of consumers changed? And what areas do you think may change back? And what areas do you think are not going to?
1: You know, it's, it's tough to predict for sure, but I think consumers for the last you know decade plus gravitate towards things which are more convenient. This convenience is a huge priority for people today. And so I think that those new behaviors which are more convenient such as you know, ordering groceries on their you know, device instead of going to the grocery store, are compelling. Now, the thing that you have to look at in any given case is, well, what are the downsides? And by the way, one of the downsides of adopting a new behavior is having to learn something new. This is, in fact, usually one of the biggest barriers to getting people to do something new, whether it's use an ATM card or use Instacart or the groceries, like, oh, I have to figure out how to do something I never knew how to do before. COVID forced people to learn. So now that they've already learned, you've removed that obstacle. So then the question is, well, how good is the experience compared to the old option? So, for example, in the case of education, in the case of I have five kids ranging from a third grade through college and education by Zoom was pretty bad. And so when the opportunity came to say, you know what, let's put the kids back in school There weren't a lot of people saying, no, no, no. We love Zoom education. We should stick with it, right? That wasn't really a problem.
0: Not a problem. But on
1: the other hand, people working remotely worked pretty well. I, you know, I work with dozens and dozens and dozens of companies, and I heard the same story from everybody, which was in two weeks we had to get our entire workforce to be able to work remotely. And I can't believe how well it went. I can't believe how smoothly it went. And everyone is working as or more productively than when they went back into the office. And now what's happening? is some companies are saying to their employees, hey, okay, it's, you can come back now. And their employees are like, nah. And then the companies are saying, okay, well, you have to come back now. And employees are saying, I think I'm gonna get another job rather than coming back because you know I never wanna go back to five days a week in the office. Now that's of course not true of absolutely everybody, but one of the factors that's leading to this great resignation we have now is people saying, yeah, I don't wanna go back to the way it was before. I kind of like, just waking up, getting my coffee and working on my computer all day and talking to people on Zoom. So this is an interesting dichotomy, which is that work via Zoom, people seem to prefer largely speaking to the old model, school by Zoom, people don't seem to prefer. And you know, and then I think we have other areas where it will depend on the situation. For example, you know, knowing that I can order food from now so many different Types of restaurants. It's, you know, in the old days, if you wanted to order food in, it was so. Do you want Chinese or pizza? You know, that was what you could order and have delivered to your house. Now, of course, you can get anything, and so there are many times when you might eat in rather than go out. But on the other hand, when you want to go out for a special occasion, then that's different. You know, there are some movies that you would have seen in the theater, and now you're like, eh, I'll just stream it. But when you want to see Dune, which is a extravaganza, and you really want to see it on the big screen, you go out. So I think you have these other situations where. Now people, instead of going out to dinner twice a week or twice a month or whatever their previous pattern might've been, they do it still, but less. And so I think that's the other factor is that certain behaviors go back partially, but in situations where the experience of doing it in person isn't all that special. You know, there are times when you want to go with your friends, not me, but like, let's say my daughters to the mall and they want to spend all day shopping and going to clothing stores. You know, they don't want to do that with their friends on Amazon. They want to do it at the mall. But on the other hand, you know, when I just need to order my son some swimming trunks and some shorts and some stuff for camp, I just assume just click on Amazon and get it done because there's no beautiful experience for me <laughs> going to the mall to get those things. So I think when the experience warrants it, people will still do things the old way, the more in-person way. But when there's not that much value in the experience, the convenience, digital usually wins.
0: Yeah, I, I can see that. There were some restaurants that were doing delivery that was like great. And it got delivered you know, to my house, which was great. And for those times when you didn't necessarily want the social experience or you know, being catered to, you know, that delivery mechanism was great. And now that it's going away, now it's all of a sudden, it's like, oh, do I have enough time to go there for lunch, right? Dinner's a little bit different, but it's like, now there's this whole, do I have that extra half an hour where I'd love their food if they delivered it, but now they don't anymore. So it'll be interesting to see how some of these people, you know, existing enterprises adapt moving forward too, whether they embrace some of the- Yeah.
1: And, and, and I don't know about your area, but I, what I'm seeing is that, Many of the restaurants that have added delivery during COVID have no plans to get rid of it, perhaps some. But in many cases, there's many restaurants that did more business during COVID than they did previously because they were fulfilling more to-go orders than they had space in their dining room. And now that they can open their dining room, many of those same restaurants are discovering that they can do a reasonable business in their dining room and a huge to go business. And in fact, there are some restaurants that are having to expand or buy adjacent buildings to expand their kitchen so that they can, can now be able to both have enough sort of kitchen space to be able to support the needs of both the in person dining and the to go. So for many businesses, I think it's going to be moving forward and building on. The things they had to change for COVID versus restricting and saying, no, if you want to eat our food, you have to come. uh,
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I hope, I hope businesses in general think about it that way, like how we've opened up new revenue streams, not just thinking, well, we got through that. Now let's revert to the old, which brings me to like, you know, now enterprises as digital competitions probably accelerated because of all of these movements, you know, large enterprises working, you know, competing, I should say with startups who tend to be or at least perceived and maybe accurately iterate faster. You know, how do enterprises make sure they're disrupting this space and continuing to push new customer experiences, integrating digital channels into what they're doing? How do they do this so that they're not being disrupted? Yeah, well, in some cases, they need to be disruptive, of course, in order to be successful.
1: This is very much what my book is about, really. How can large enterprises figure out how to transform because I, I got to tell you, you know, sometimes I talk to people at large enterprises and they're they're quite discouraged. They face all kinds of challenges. It's like the old analogy of, you know, if you want to move a aircraft carrier and you want it to turn around 180 degrees, it takes like 10 miles of open ocean to be able to turn that aircraft carrier around. And, of course, a speedboat can turn around in a very short period of time. So to your analogy of, you know, kind of smaller, more nimble companies. However, there are many large pre-internet legacy brands who have really embraced and been very, very successful in the digital space. Federal Express, Lego, UPS, Domino's, Starbucks. Walmart is the number two online retailer in the United States. The number two digital wallet, you know, the number one digital wallet in the United States is Apple Pay. And even though there are things like Google Pay and Samsung Pay, the number two digital wallet in the United States is Starbucks. So there's no question that large and traditional brands, let us say, you know, pre-digital brands, are figuring out how to be successful. And, you know, what my book is about is kind of a five-step process for how do you do that? I mean, I'm happy to talk about as much of the details you want here. Obviously, you can't go through everything, but my whole sort of career has been trying to figure that problem out. How can large enterprises have the level of innovation and agility that they need in order to compete and move at the speed that the world is moving today?
0: Yeah, so why don't we touch on the high level there of those five steps,
1: Sure, sure. So yeah, as you say in the book, I talk about the five-step digital transformation process. In fact, we call it, in keeping with the, the name of your podcast, the customer love digital transformation process because it starts with the recognition that driving customer behavior, as we said earlier, is actually the number one goal of digital transformation, not implementing some new technology or something like that, even though those may be things you need to do. So the five steps. The first is one we talked about before, which is understanding your customer. Everything you're going to do in digital transformation needs to be rooted in understanding the customer because that's the measure of success. If you can drive customer behavior, in other words, more sales, more loyalty, more online reviews, you know, less expensive customer service interactions, whatever it may be, that is going to be the number one key to success. So, of course, if our goal is to drive customer behavior, we better understand something about these people whose behavior we're trying to drive. Then the second step we talked about earlier as well, which is to map the journey. Both the current journey and then create that vision of what's the future customer experience that will really differentiate your company in this marketplace and win the love and deserve the love of today's digitally centric customers. And then the third step is to build the future, which and in, in the book, I talk a lot about design thinking methods and how we apply them and how we sometimes tweak them to Take a customer journey and break it apart and say, okay, this customer journey that we've envisioned is made up of different products. Things like a chatbot, a website, uh, an app, you know, a backend, a digital asset management system, uh, you know, an Alexa skill, whatever it may be. And how do you focus on each of those individual components individually and do the right kinds of customer research and iterative design process, including prototyping and user testing to make sure that you're building that one part of the journey in a way that will really play its role effectively and be well-received by your customers and drive the desired behavior that it is supposed to drive in its part of the journey. So those are the three kind of somewhat serial steps of the process, understand the customer, map the journey, and then build the future. And while you're doing those three things, there are two sort of parallel steps that you want to be doing the whole time. The first is to optimize the present. Because envisioning and then moving towards an ambitious vision of the future where your company will be truly digitally world-class, in most cases, takes time, sometimes years. And customers aren't patient. Boards and directors aren't patient. Investors aren't patient. You need to be making progress every day, every week, every quarter while you're moving towards that grand longer-term vision. And so the book talks about how do you identify the low-hanging fruit opportunities to make quick fixes, the spit and bailing wire, like we were talking about before, that may not be, may not get you all the way to customer love, but nevertheless, reduce places where you're creating disappointment, dissatisfaction, unhappiness, frustration, confusion, et cetera. And if you fix a few things every week or every sprint, you know if you fix 20, 30, 40 things every quarter, By the end of a year, you fixed 80, 100 things. That can add up to a real cumulative difference in customer satisfaction, in revenue, in conversion, in cost of sales, et cetera. And then the last of the five is to lead the change. And while, of course, leadership doesn't start at the end, it starts at the beginning. In the book, we talk about it last because we feel it's easier to first get a landscape of what's all the stuff you have to do for digital transformation. And then let's talk about the kind of leadership that's necessary in order to make it successful. But leadership is critical in digital transformation because most organizations are going to have a fair amount of resistance to digital transformation, even when it's essential for the company's long-term success. In the book, I talk about a dozen different reasons that people and companies resist change, resist transformation. And so leaders need to be visionary. They also need to be inspirational. And they also need to be savvy politicians who are mindful that there's always somebody trying to shoot an arrow in their back when they're leading major change in an organization for a variety of different reasons. And so we go into some of the things that you need to do to try to play that role successfully.
0: I like those five steps. And, and one of the things I, I think that you mentioned was particularly important was this idea of optimizing the present. Because if if all you're doing is you have a three-year plan for getting to why, you know, during those three years, lots can happen and it's hard for all the reasons you mentioned. Now, as far as execution of the transformation while optimizing the present, do you advise for separate teams? Like, are there different groups working on each part of that? Like, one of the problems I've always seen with companies and going down both is that resources that are supposed to be working on the future get pulled into doing a lot of the stuff for the present or vice versa. How do you deal with kind of those tactical things, those, oh, we just need you guys for a couple months to fix this problem?
1: Yeah, well, I think the right way to structure organizations and teams around this work is another topic that we go into in some depth in the book. At at a high level, I'll say, yes, I think you want separate teams because, you know, the, the Jeff Bezos two pizza rule, right? Which says that, you know, when teams get too large, they become less productive. And so, yeah, you want to break work up into different teams and let them focus in different areas. Now, having said that, you want to avoid total silos because they can benefit from a lot from each other as you do customer research for example it can feed both a long term vision and identify problems that can be solved in the short term yes and by the way you know aside from those two there's another team which is your day to day operations which is different from the quick fixes you've got your day to day like yeah. you know yeah. the halloween sale is happening we have to change the homepage for that or or break fix you know a new version of ios just came out and we have to make a tweak cuz the page is no longer formatting correctly that's one thing and then you've got your That's your immediate operational role. And then you've got your short-term fixed team, maybe multiple teams, because you might have one for the app and one for the mobile web and one for the website and whatnot. And then of course, you've got your people who are working on your long-term visionary stuff. And similarly, that may be broken into multiple teams. You might have one team that's working on one part of the journey, another that's working on another part. So you need ways to bring those teams together so they're not working in silos, but it's good to break work down and let teams feel ownership over a part of the whole. And by the way, that's another reason the journey maps are so powerful, because when you have smaller teams, but many of them, and everyone's working on their own component, of course, a lot of their focus and attention is going to be in the area that they're focused on. That's natural. But they need some method to look at the big picture and remind themselves that there's a bigger map, and I'm building a component of an experience that's meant to fit in to a larger journey, and that journey map can be a reminder, and we recommend putting them out on big posters and putting them up on the walls. You know, make sure people are looking at those regularly so they don't forget that they're one part of a larger puzzle. So Howard, what's your favorite product? My favorite product? Oof, that's a tough one. You know, I'm very passionate about mechanical watches. (laughs) So if I was to pick like my truly favorite product, it would probably be, you know, some kind of, you know, hand-wound mechanical watch with a tourbillon in it or something like that. Because I find just looking at these types of, devices which do something so amazing as keep precise time using technology that was around hundreds of years ago, and the engineering effort that went into figuring that out in a pre-digital world, that's sort of a passion of mine and something that I find fascinating. Yeah, that Um, is fascinating.
0: Well, I I know we're running out of time for today, so I have one final question for you. Three words to describe yourself.
1: I was going to say pain in the ass, but that's four words, so I guess that's (laughs) no good. (laughs) I don't know. I'm glad you're asking me and not my team. Um, Three words to describe myself. I think one would be compassionate. And I think compassion for users and people who are using a product is one thing that helps drive me. Enthusiastic. I'm always feeling positive about, you know, the future and what's going on and all the opportunities it presents. And, you know, I'm thankful. I really, I feel very fortunate to live in this moment in history when digital is taking off. And of course, I'm very blessed by many things in my life. So if I had to pick three words off the top of my head, it would be those. Thanks, Howard. This is great. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been a lot of fun.